The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to She Talks Health with Sophie Shepard. Today's woman has a lot of questions about their health and lifestyle choices. But where can you get the right answers? The answer is here and the time is now. Here is your host, Sophie Shepard. Welcome back, ladies, to the She Talks Health podcast, your number one place to get answers to women's health issues. And this is Sophie Shepard, your host. And this episode is long, long overdue. And this topic is so important. We're going to be talking to Dr. Jessica Drummond about endometriosis today, this debilitating disease that affects one in 10 women. And Dr. Drummond is absolutely a foremost researcher and speaker on this specific subject. So I'm so honored to have her. I consider uh, Jessica a personal mentor of mine for the past few months. I've been really following her work and she is a leader in the women's menstrual health industry She's the CEO of the Integrative Women's Health Institute and the best-selling author of Outsmart Endometriosis. She actually is a rare bird because she holds licenses in physical therapy and also clinical nutrition and is a board-certified health coach. So with 20 years of experience working with women with chronic pain, pelvic pain, she really is a fantastic educator on the topic of endometriosis and pelvic pain. So Dr. Jessica Drummond, welcome to the She Talks Health podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's, It's my honor to be here. I'm so, so excited. Let's dive right in. I'd love to actually hear, before we talk about endo, why you got so interested in this specific niche was it personal? Was it just uh, an interest from the science? What got you started? So my clinical career actually started in sports medicine and orthopedics. I was an athlete as a kid, and I thought, you know, that's what I would do in my physical therapy career. Um, but pretty quickly, I began to sort of subspecialize, you know, women's health in terms of from a physical therapy perspective is about the bones and joints and muscles and ligaments and musculoskeletal health, also neuromusculoskeletal, um, for women's issues. So it was like I would work with the shoulder pain related to breast cancer surgery or women who had back pain related to pregnancy or things like that. And so that's how I began to specialize more in women's health. It started with an orthopedic lens, but because I'm always carrying around a pelvis, like the bones and muscles and joints in the pelvis have a lot to do with um, incont- urinary incontinence, complex pelvic pain. So, you know, that's how my practice evolved for off and on for about gosh, eight years maybe, I worked in a women's specialty hospital. Actually, I worked in two places focusing on women's pregnancy, both big, one was kind of a women's specialty hospital and one was a big teaching hospital. So I was even doing like manual therapy for women who were in labor or women who were uh, inpatient in the hospital on bed rest for months and months. So I had a, a nice early lens of experience to bring my skill set in musculoskeletal and manual therapy into the women's health realm. And 
But at that time, so we're talking about around like two, early 2000s, um, most of our patients with complex pelvic pain, endometriosis, vulvodynia, um, bladder pain syndromes, didn't have very good tools. They, you know, we had some tools that could really help them from a physical therapy standpoint. There were some medical tools. The surgeries for endo were terrible at the time. Um, people had like neurostimulators implanted into their spines. They were addicted to opioids. Like it was a pretty, like oh my there goodness. were challenges. We didn't have the tools to really heal complex pelvic pain. Um, although people that had less severe cases, a lot of the physical therapy tools were very useful and sometimes completely resolved the issue. Um, but no one was really looking at this holistically and I wasn't even trained to or had the insight to do that. But then my oldest daughter, she's almost 17 now. So when she was born, I got really sick. Now kind of having my lens of clinical nutrition from a functional medicine standpoint, I realized that probably what happened to me was I had a reactivation of the Epstein-Barr virus. So I was really super fatigued, anxious, panic attacks, caught every cold and flu, had a million sinus infections. And I was pretty sick for about four years, but it was very vague. And then and I was trying kind of my PT mindset. Like I couldn't sleep through the night. I swim harder, you know, like I work out harder. <laughs> right, like the go, go, go mentality that we know doesn't often work very well for, for women who are in cycling menstruating years. Yeah, so I was like powering through my life. And I was in my early, Claire was born when I was 29, I think. So I was like late 20s, early 30s career building, you know, and also I had a baby, by the way, who didn't sleep till she was like six. So you weren't <laughs> tired at all, I mean. Right. And so basically what all the clinicians said to me that I tried to get help for this was like, this is normal. You know, once you have a baby, like you'll never sleep again. Like it's perfectly normal to be exhausted. And I was really like, really? Are you That's sure? terrible. <laughs> so... So finally, so before that, so at that point I was living in North Carolina when I was just kind of hit my, hit my uh, wall, I guess. But before that, I had been working in Texas at this women's specialty hospital. And there was a physician that we used to send all the like difficult patients to. And people we thought like, we don't understand what's going on here. Maybe they're non-compliant. Maybe we're just not getting this right. And she would help some of them. So and we went back to Texas and I literally like, you know, poured myself in her waiting room and it was just like, I don't know what's wrong with me. So she did some functional, she was a very early functional medicine doctor trained, you know, before this was really a thing, trained in China, trained, you know, I think she was originally trained in Canada and her son was an acupuncturist and she had this very kind of calming, holistic medical practice, a sort of early concierge medical practice, um, but very kind of one-on-one -on -one chill. And so she did some hormone testing on me and I found out I had uh, HPA axis dysfunction, kind of like adrenal burnout, which makes a lot of sense when you think about how I was trying to heal myself. I was just going to say you were probably completely burnt out. Yeah. I mean, my cortisol was like completely flatlined. I didn't have Addison's, thank God, but other than like I was a step above that. Wow. wow. So 
essentially what happened was I used nutrition and, and a complete revisiting of my relationship with stress and hardcore workouts and things like that to heal my own hormones. And I thought, huh, for my patients with complex pelvic pain, a lot of it was cyclical. Maybe there's a hormonal component. What if I test some of these things, which I thought were crazy. I was like, who doesn't eat dairy? I mean, basically all I eat is like pasta and yogurt. So like, how am I going to teach people how to eat, you know, without dairy and gluten? Oh my and, gosh. You know. I love this journey that you went on, especially I'm loving this because the time frame is so relevant. A lot of people, when I have them on the show talking about their journey through this, you know, functional medicine, holistic medicine was kind of already established. So it was like, oh yeah. And then of course I went gluten-free and then I went dairy-free and all these things. But you're, um, you know, at the, this place where it really wasn't widely accepted or done. No, everyone thought I was nuts. Um, my colleagues were like, you know, I thought I was not, I was like, I don't know why this works. I stopped eating sugar. It took me four months to stop having intense sugar cravings. I had no idea how bad my blood sugar instability was. And, you know, everyone was just like, uh, you know, really like this can't heal pain. So many, I got constant messages, you know, diet has nothing to do with pain. You know, I don't know why you're spouting all this. Da, da, da. Wow. So, I was just like, well, you know, I don't know how it works. It's going to take me a lot more understanding to really make sure this, but I started just very tentatively kind of making suggestions to some of my patients. I knew it helped me. So that gave me kind of the fuel for the fire because suddenly now, well, not suddenly, it took about two years, but two years of investing in my own just baseline health, sleep. I took six months completely off work. You know, I walked, I did yoga, I did no exercise to speak of, um, I slept a lot, and I ate no sugar, you know, no gluten, no dairy, um, and I just really completely changed everything, and, but slowly, because it was this sort of like, let me try this, let me try this, and, mm. you know, I was introduced to things along the way that I would test, you know, for a while I was doing, like, it didn't always work, so, like, it sounds like a very, you know, step-by-step -step perfect journey, but it wasn't really, like, there were times when I was doing, like, raw egg milkshakes, that was terrible. Oh, my probably. gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so, you tried a lot of things on the journey to finding out what worked for your body. Yes, yeah. so at the end of the day, I knew that that wasn't enough to start using it with my patients because we had to have a little bit more of an evidence base and a little more systematic approach. So I did go back to school and get a doctorate in clinical nutrition, but I was a clinician first and foremost. And a, I think it was to my advantage that I was trained as a physical therapist, not a physician, because I thought more globally, not one drug for one diagnosis, you know, because even the doctors I know now who do functional medicine, they get stuck in their original training of what supplement for what diagnosis, what diet for what diagnosis. And absolutely. I see this all the time. And um, I'm trained from FDN from Reed Davis's program. And we are taught from the beginning that, you know, everything affects everything. The human body is connected and you cannot like symptom treat or spot treat, even when it comes to holistic, you can't, a symptom can be so far removed from the actual thing that's going on in the person's body. And um, for anyone who 
needs like a really concrete example of this since we are talking about like pelvic pain and, and we'll get into menstrual pain alongside that. I have a client right now who um, does not yet have a diagnosis of endometriosis. She, she may, we, we don't know, but her main issue was pelvic pain around her cycle and um, so bad that she was, you know, vomiting and having nauseous um, attacks on the day of her first day of cycle. And, you know, a lot of people would think, well, she probably um, has estrogen dominance. And we, we did a Dutch test and we did all these things. And it turned out she, she was like heavy metal toxic and she's got a ton of stuff going on in her gut and a parasite and all these things. And so we're starting to piece together this full picture of why this woman is having these different pains and these different symptoms. And um, I think that that is really hard for people who are listening because they might be also in the world of like symptom treating or this for that. So I love that you also came from a kind of background of let's look at this whole person and see how we can support them. Yeah. And so that helped me to evolve and not just sort of try to apply what kind of worked for my body directly with my patients to, to get more education and to think more broadly. So that's really how I specifically began to, to refine my practice more and more in complex pelvic pain and endometriosis because it was the thing that we didn't have the right tools for. And I had period pain at various times. I had an, uh, some ovarian cyst issues, um, but I don't personally have endometriosis. At one point when I was maybe like 27 or 28, I had a lot of period pain. And the doctor was like, you probably have endometriosis, but just get pregnant and you'll solve that. And I was like, mm, okay. So <laughs> I wasn't dating anyone. And I was just like, no. Oh my God. But that, you know, obviously is a myth. That is not true at all. So, but so I don't, it's not a personal direct health journey, although I have experienced what it's like to kind of be on the floor with a ruptured ovarian cyst, but it's not the same thing as the chronic 15, 20 year journey of people who live with endometriosis yeah. personally. Such a, such a journey they go through and let's definitely dive into that. And thank you so much for walking us through how you got here because it's so powerful and so amazing. And like you, I was going to bring this up later, actually, when we, when we do talk about how you can get a diagnosis of endometriosis, but it, I didn't realize that you'd had such a similar experience to, to me. I, I was, I think, 26 and I had a, a ruptured ovarian cyst and spent the night in the hospital because they were afraid of like too much bleeding and, you know, bleeding out or whatever. So, but I remember at the time my OBGYN said, well, you, you probably have endometriosis, so you need to go on the birth control pill. And I remember at that time was the first time I realized that in order to get an endometriosis diagnosis, you do have to go through a surgery that's, that, that my doctor at the time felt was um, unnecessary. So before we get into all of that, I mean, these are some of the horror stories we hear. It's like, there's a lot to think about. There's a lot of stress around this. Let's talk about the actual definition of endometriosis, because I think that there is a lot of misinformation and maybe start talking about some of the symptoms outside of these uh, pelvic pain issues we talked about that are so common with endometriosis. Yeah, so the disease itself is um, tissue that's like the tissue that lines the inside of the uterus, but not exactly the same, similar. And it's essentially growths of this tissue. Various, there are various forms of endometriosis lesions, they're called. 
that I think of as being similar to, again, not the same, as a benign cancer. So there are growths of this kind of tissue all around can be, and by definition, it's outside of the uterus. That's an important point because hysterectomy is not a cure for endometriosis. In fact, it doesn't even treat endometriosis because endometriosis is, by definition, outside of the uterus. Now, adenomyosis can't, is similar lesions on the lining of, like the muscular lining uh, inside the uterus. So in that case, hysterectomy is a treatment. Um, but endometriosis itself is by definition, the lesions are growing outside the uterus, usually often on the abdominal and pelvic organs, the pouch of Douglas, the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, outside of the uterus, on the bowel, on the small intestine, but, and also bladder is a real common place but also can be on like ligaments and soft tissue and diaphragm and even on the lung. People with endometriosis are presented with collapsed lungs. Uh, on the inside the nose, on the knee, there's lots of case studies of where these aberrant tissues can grow. And they cause adhesion. The, the tissue and lesions themselves are little hormone factories. They're inflammatory in and of themselves. They um, are. They can cause adhesions. And one thing we see really commonly is sort of wrapped in and around the digestive tract. So, symptom-wise, you have pelvic pain that may or may not be cyclical. In younger women and teenagers and tweens, it's less likely to be cyclical, which makes it even more confusing. It's not just period cramps. It can feel like period cramps, but like you're not even having your period or your period's not expected or your period's irregular or heavy. Um, so the first presenting symptoms usually occur in the pre-early, like just before puberty, just pre-puberty, ages like 8 to 12, 13. Usually it's digestive in nature, which makes it again really complicated. Are you anxious and having stomach aches? Are you constipated, which is really common? What's your food plan like? Da, da, da. So for this is a lot of reasons why this is dismissed in the earliest presenting symptoms because it looks like GI. But when you step back and you think this is also a genetic disease, They've done studies on fetuses, female fetuses. So this can impact any human with a uterus. So transgender men, women, um, anything that, any person that has a uterus. So, but they've looked at female fetuses. 9% have endometriosis-like growths. 10% of girls and women have endometriosis worldwide. So this is present even at birth most of the time. Um, there's a genetic component. So looking at, you know, mother, mothers, sisters, aunts, grandma, a lot of those women maybe didn't know they had endometriosis because the treatment and the recognition was even worse. But if they struggled with infertility, bad pelvic pain, um, digestive issues, fatigue, anxiety, relate kind of in that cluster, um, you know, finding yourself on a bathroom floor anywhere in a public bathroom, like that's a pretty big sign. Um, so when you look at that whole picture together, it's like it becomes more and more likely. Um, and so that's what the disease is. It's a combination of a genetic underpinning, the kind of hormonal disruption of the disease itself, 
We used to think it was an estrogen dominance. That's not really shown to be true. The Some new data back in early 2018 showed that the lesions themselves under histology can have upregulated estrogen receptors, progesterone receptors, both or neither. So the hormone picture is a little bit more complicated than we used to think. And then inflammatory, the lesions are definitely inflammatory. And, and what I've found clinically is that inflammatory nutrition lifestyle exacerbates that inflammation. So that's key. And often clusters with other autoimmune diseases like um, Hashimoto's and celiac. So, and there's an, an issue of autoimmune infertility, autoimmune related infertility that we've, I've been looking at for 10 years that is helped by endometriosis surgery. We now have some new data supporting that. So the autoimmunity, I don't know if it's driven by the lesions or it's driving the lesions or both. It's probably some level of both like inflammation. Um, but it's because it's such a complex disease, there's no one quick, like you can't just do a blood test or have a quick pelvic ultrasound to determine whether or not you have endometriosis. It's always a surgical diagnosis, unfortunately. So much incredible information. And I recently learned from you about the early age onset that this is going on in in these tweens, as you mentioned, like early adolescence. And, um, and I had no idea before meeting you about this percentage of endometriosis type growth in the uterus. This is so fascinating. So we, I think that there's a part of this that also really helps women because we're talking about the fact that there are many components to the causal factors with some life, like some diseases will say it's like a lifestyle disease, like, you know, 80% of chronic disease, I think, or something like that is you can fix with lifestyle. Now with endometriosis, what I think you're saying is that you can support it with lifestyle, but there's a whole host of things that you can also do to, um, to help this and that it might have been caused, one of the causal factors might have just been genetics. So there's a lot of things that, you know, are out of your control, but there are also things you can use to support with like with any other inflammatory based disease. Is that correct? Kind of right. Like. So it's not usually the case that just using lifestyle interventions, you can completely resolve your symptoms. To me, I like to inform women of that, especially younger women. I mean, all women for sure, but especially younger women because it's a, in some cases, deciding whether or not to have early and skilled excision surgery can be fertility sparing because a lot of times we can do a lot to resolve the symptoms with lifestyle, but we may or may not be able to really impact the fertility um, aspect because you're not like shrinking the lesions necessarily. You're not curing the disease from a lifestyle standpoint. It's not kind of like diabetes where you can reverse it with, you know, changing your lifestyle and your food. Um, you know, there hasn't really been a study that, and I don't think this would even be very ethical that you would just do lifestyle interventions and then combine, you know, test lifestyle interventions against lifestyle interventions plus excision surgery. The best outcomes that we see right now is really a combination of both. And there are some appropriate medications that can be valuable, especially around the time of surgery for 
calming the nervous system, for example. And again, we try to amplify and improve the effects of that using lifestyle and nutrition. Um, same thing with post-op, you know, post-op recovery. People might need less pain medication if they're less inflamed. Um, you know, so it's, I think really the, the gold standard treatment would be a combination of all of these things. We have a four-month program that preps people before and after surgery. Not everyone ends up having surgery, which is great. Like some people are past their fertility years. It's also a myth, by the way, that menopause cures endometriosis. That's also not true. But sometimes people who maybe already had children or no longer want children or have had several failed surgeries because there's a lot of that around or they're just high risk or whatever reason they, they decide not to or choose not to have surgery, we can really get their symptoms under control in many cases. So they make a choice not to have surgery. Um, but every case is individualized. And so if you have, if you take that wide lens and you combine nutrition, lifestyle, pelvic physical therapy to calm again, those kind of structural pain drivers skilled excision surgery, which is challenging to access all over the world, and good post-op recovery, I see really, really good outcomes. I mean, so much better than, you know, what we used to see 10, 12 years ago where people were just kind of 17 surgeries later, you know, spiraling more and more into disability. Yeah. And, and this is, I want to, I want to loop back to that holistic plan at the end too, just to make sure that we really hit it home, but we're talking about nutrition, lifestyle, pelvic, um, physical therapy, excision surgery, which we'll talk about, you know, um, diagnosis and, and, and all of that in a second too. Um, is there anything else that I missed there that you just mentioned or that should be included inside that holistic plan? And is that all included kind of understanding or information around that included in your four-month program? Where can people find that information? Yeah, so the easiest way for them to find it is I've written a book, which I'm happy to give you for free at outsmartendo.com. Um, that, you know, whatever, 100 pages or so will detail the whole thing. Um, but there, and there are, are some valuable medications. I think one of the fights, you know, to put it bluntly, in the world of endo right now is the medical management versus surgical management. Okay. And again, I think it's a false choice. There are times when surgery has to be delayed for many, many reasons. There are serious side effects to many medications. There are benefits of some medications to both surgeries, I mean, both, to both symptoms and to, you know, better surgical outcomes. So, you know, some of the medications associated with endometriosis can be valuable, but medication like going, as you said earlier, the doctor was just like, well, go on birth control, like right. either estrogen suppression, like Lupron or, or Lessa, things like that, or even gabapentin, which kind of calms the nervous system. There are significant problems with a lot of these medications for just tr like for as a curative perspective, you know, go on birth control, just suppress your hormones. First of all, it doesn't work all the time because of that variability in, in hormonal expression. But also, I think it's, it's irresponsible, quite honestly, to just 
take a bunch of 13 to 17 year olds and put them on birth control without talking about the risks of birth control in that population, the long-term impacts on the brain, the heart, the bones. Um, and again, you're not even treating the disease. You're just sort of silencing the symptoms. So when that same woman tries to get pregnant in her 30s, she hasn't done anything to address the underlying challenge. So that's my frustration with sort of the medical model. I don't think that all medications are invalid, you know, are, are horrible, but they're just not used um, deliberately in the context of a more complete plan. Why do you think that this disease is so complex, under-recognized, it, you know, these, there's these different medical, surgical lifestyle models and and there's not a lot of conversation like what, what we're having where you can kind of pair everything together. Why do you think that is? And, and how can women kind of <laughs> sort through? I'm, I'm like doing this visual of like <laughs> seeing through the, the crazy and figure out what's best for them. Well, I mean, to be fair, I really do think the professionals at the highest level who really do a lot of endometriosis work collaboratively, whether they're surgeons or, um, you know, medically focused physicians or nutritionists or physical therapists are. We've had meetings uh, through an organization, through the Inter International Pelvic Pain Society, um, through there's a summit called the Endometriosis Summit. Um, they each, you know, there are a lot of professional meetings. They each have some of their own biases and, you know, benefits and risks, but people working in this field and I've been attending these meetings for more than a decade, some of them are a little newer, but are really having these conversations with each other. And I do think that it's evolving. I mean, you know, some of the best people that I work with are skilled excision endometriosis surgeons. And they don't, you know, and they use medications sometimes too, and they don't always recommend surgery. So I think the field, the professionals in the field who really are immersed in this are improving a lot together collaboratively and are really trying to reach out and help women. The problem is to get access to that kind of care is either very difficult depending on which country you live in. So you might have to wait years and years or probably no matter what, very expensive because the general organization um, that supports gynecologists doesn't really think endometriosis excision surgery or, and first of all, they don't even consider things like lifestyle, but they think basic ablation surgery, which kind of just burns off the lesions that takes less time. That doesn't really look at all the complexities around the bowel and everything is the same thing as doing really skilled excision surgery in terms of how they pay for it, which is almost nothing. So it's very difficult to get access to good care from a financial standpoint, no matter where you live in the world. And both socialized medical systems do this poorly because a lot of times they just keep people on medication for years and years and years until they get access to um, more comprehensive care or they don't have more comprehensive care. And, and then in the US, of course, it's just super expensive. So I, I think that's the biggest challenge we have is access. It's not that we don't really know as a community of providers the best care. We just don't have the capacity 
to offer it that much, that broadly, because the reimbursement is impossible. I mean, I couldn't run my practice if I did it through an insurance model. I just, it wouldn't, it would cease to exist. That is so unfortunate. And it seems like, I I think that that's probably half the frustration women are experiencing. I'm part of a lot of endometriosis groups on Facebook and things and just seeing how upset um, women are because they are in so much pain and they, they don't know who to turn to, who to trust. And it now hearing this from you is so interesting. So there's, there are obviously providers that do specialize this, specialize in this and they know exactly what to do, but their hands are tied in terms of how to make it affordable and accessible. And it sounds like also to find a skilled surgeon specifically an excision surgeon is, um, pretty few and far between, right? It's, it's, it, there are not tons of these um, physicians running around. Um, there's a lot more ablation, um, which is, I understand, not to be as helpful in some situations than excision. 100%. It's, you know, people who really are skilled at this, who do it all day, every day, they're rare and they're very well trained, um, but their surgeries are difficult. And as I said, they're not reimbursed. So they have to out, practice outside of the kind of traditional model. Now there are some excision surgeons who work at like academic medical centers and things like that who are able to do surgery inside, you know, and take insurance. Um, but just, you know, they're good surgeons are really difficult to come by. And where would a woman start if she was looking for a good diagnosis of endometriosis and then later on in, in life of, of maybe being diagnosed with endometriosis, how would someone look for a skilled excision surgeon? How would you even know that this person is someone that does do this in and out every day and is someone that you should trust with this type of um, delicate surgery? One of the best places to look is there's a Facebook group called Nancy's Nook. Um, It's an educational group that has listings of surgeons and it's a good place to start your own research. I think everyone needs to take a, take responsibility of doing their own research because it's not just the surgeon, it's the environment. Do you gel with that person? Da, 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 da. Uh, in my book, In Outsmart Endometriosis, we also, I list some resources of surgeons that I know well. Um, you know, it's, it is, it's kind of like anything else, like because the, this is a rare specialty you know, just like if you had cancer or something, you would do some deep research in finding who you wanted to be on your, your team. And I think that's how we have to, you know, women with endometriosis have to take ownership in the sense of saying, I'm going to build my own team. I'm going to see who regularly teaches on this topic, who does these surgeries day in and day out, not just occasionally in between delivering babies who, you know, who's written books on endometriosis, who sees patients, not just sort of wrote books about it, you know. Um, And then there is always just the connection. Like, is this a person, whether they're your nutritionist or your pelvic PT or your surgeon, is is this someone I trust, I have a good relationship with, I'm able to be open about my questions. So I think really women have to take ownership of that. But I would say a place to start in terms of find it just like, where do I look first? Who would I talk to? I would start with Nancy's Nook. 
Okay, thank you so much. And can we just go back also to the diagnosis of endometriosis and this surgery that is required? I mean, at what point do you and how do you talk to a, a doctor about if that's necessary? Like, would you be presenting with certain symptoms where a doctor would find that medically necessary? Um, and, w- and what does that process look like, the actual first diagnosis of this? Because I, I would imagine there's probably people listening to this episode who don't know if they have endometriosis and um, are, are, aren't sure how to kind of address that first step. Yeah, so it would definitely be something I would want to rule out if I, there was any kind of family history, even if it's not super clear, uh, you know, lots infertility, struggles with fertility, pelvic pain, period pain especially if it's combined with things like digestive issues, fatigue, anxiety. If that's your experience, especially if it started around age 8 to 12, um, if the digestive issues and pelvic pain sort of go hand in hand. If your period pain is so disruptive that you can't function for more than a day without medication at any point, so it could be during your period, could be ovulation could be any time in between. If you have painful sex, if you have bladder symptoms or bladder pain, if you have vulvar pain, they call this the terrible triplets. A lot of times people have endometriosis and vulvodynia and um, painful bladder syndrome or interstitial cystitis. So that's, those are kind of, that's like the symptom cluster that I'm going to be like, okay, you likely, probably, maybe have endometriosis. So the diagnosis is, a lapros- is by laparoscopic surgery. Now, surgeons who are skilled at this also take good histories and will probably have you do some imaging to see, but imaging can't rule out endometriosis, although sometimes endometriosis lesions can be seen on imaging. So it can be a helpful part of the process. But you want to essentially choose your surgeon to both do the diagnosis and the excision at the same time. That's usually what they do. So you can have chart reviews. Actually, the, um, there's a place in Atlanta called, I think it's called the Endometriosis Center or something like that. The physician who runs it is named Ken Sinervo. They do free chart reviews uh, for people who su- suspect they have endometriosis. They're one of the top centers in the world. They've trained many of the top surgeons. Um, so that's a good place to kind of explore, you know, and depending on where you are, there are great surgeons in each kind of region of the U S. So you don't always have to start with Atlanta, like on the West coast, there are some great surgeons as well. Iris Orbach, um, there's great surgeons in Virginia, like Ken Barron. So there are, it's not like only one place, but reach when you kind of do your research, think of where you are regionally, which will make a difference because you don't necessarily want to have surgery in Atlanta if you live in California because it's going to be difficult. You got to travel home and then especially now like COVID, um, it's nicer if you can just drive home and recover. So, you know, you have to think of all of these issues, but what the surgeons will do is a history, a chart review, you know, has this been going on since you were 12? Uh, Family history, what medications did or did not help, what have you been through so far, and then they can do a laparoscopic surgery that's both diagnostic and treatment at the same time. 
Incredible resources. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. I know this is going to be really helpful for so many women. And one point of clarification uh, I want to make sure I, I cover is this this cluster you said, the three, the endo, um, painful bladder, and vulvodynia. Mm-hmm. Why do we think that, is that just because the lesions move from, from like kind of mucosal layer to mucosal layer and then it's kind of spreading throughout the body? Is that why we feel that, that those three go together? No, not necessarily. Now, there are very often lesions on and around the bladder. So that's, that's part of it for sure. The vulvodynia is a little trickier. I personally think that most of the time that's because people with suspected endometriosis, especially used to be, always put on hormonal birth control. And hormonal birth control, we know, literally causes vulvodynia. So if you are suppressing estrogen from an early age, then you are actually literally shrinking the clitoris and the vulvar tissues and drying them out. So that is actually a cause of vulvar pain. Not in every woman because there's genetic variability in the receptors for estrogen, but in certain population of women, that is a problem. I did not realize that. And that makes so much sense with the knowledge I do have about how important estrogen is. It gets a bad rap sometimes, but it is really important for our tissue health and many, many things. So fascinating. Okay. So there's this kind of connection we think between birth control and vulvodynia potentially with that shrinking of the tissues. Interesting. And I also think, you know, lesions can be anywhere. So Mm -hmm. you know, they can deep painful sex is very common. That's different from vulvodynia, but Sexual pain is very common with endometriosis, depending on where the lesions are and how much inflammation is in the pelvis, things like that. And you've mentioned inflammation a couple of times, and I know you've spoken about this kind of autoimmune inflammation connection. And as someone with Hashimoto's and an autoimmune disease, I'm always trying to keep my inflammation under wraps. I've done a lot of genetic testing myself just to see like what's going on there. And I actually have genetic... um, variants on almost every detox um, mm-hmm. inflammatory marker ever. So I'm, I'm pretty careful on um, things I can control with inflammation and autoimmune components. Um, could you talk about, because uh, I know we're going to probably wrap up pretty soon, some of the holistic perspective, the nutrition things that I know are really important for lowering inflammation, and if there are any other additional things women with endometriosis should be considering from that perspective. Yeah. So unfortunately, there's not just one endo diet, but in the book, I kind of talk about a little bit more about how to systematically figure out your own. One thing that's helpful is to consider genetics. So people that have an O blood type have certain genetic clusters that often they do better with more of that low carb, like paleo, keto. But as Anna Quebec, I would say like keto green, like you don't want it to just be the all bacon all coconut oil diet. You want it to be lots of greens and vegetables, but because of all the digestive issues with endometriosis, usually we start with cooked vegetables, blended soups, things that are easier to digest. We also start with a lot of digestive support supplements, things like stomach acid support, digestive enzyme support, motility support, which is really helped by abdominal visceral physical therapy. So doing both supplements and really getting the digestive tract moving and excision surgery often helps this a lot. People that have endometriosis very often have chronic SIBO. So treating that, but also the reason is their digestive, uh, their 
um, stomach acid is usually low and or their ileocecal valve is foggy and they have poor motility and they have adhesions around the small intestine. So it's not like you can just take rounds and rounds of refaxamine and keep killing it off. You've got to fix like the structural function of the digestive system, both kind of biochemically and physically. So that's kind of one key factor with diet. I'm going to, I'm going to jump in right there just because people, we haven't necessarily dove into SIBO. We will. Mm -hmm. SIBO is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. What Dr. Drummond is talking about is that with this overgrowth, there is a, a motility aspect where you, you, um, the, the, the bowel needs to be moving at the way that it's kind of supposed to be moving. And so we look to things like raising stomach acid, supporting the digestive enzymes, um, making sure that food is moving through the bowel as it, as it should be. Um, and Rifaxin is a uh, antibiotic that is um, proven to support SIBO in I think about 40% of the cases. But one of the, the newer things we're learning is that motility support is really crucial for SIBO because what happens is um, the food kind of starts to ferment in the bowel and this can cause a lot of digestive issues and um, other inflammatory processes through the body. So we'll, we'll dive into SIBO on another topic, but that's, it is a related, like Dr. Drummond talked about, digestion is so related to endometriosis. So I'm so glad you brought up kind of those specific things you'd look for with digestion. Thank you. Yeah. And because it's very common for women to report quote unquote endo belly bloating. And really that's usually SIBO in my experience. So, so anyway, low carb diet, but something that's easy to digest works very well in many cases. Some people do better with vegan, even raw vegan, because again, they have the genetics that is better with less animal protein. It's, it's highly variable. And so it's a little bit, but it's always pretty much eliminate sugar, gluten, dairy, soy. That's a very simple thing that people can start with. But What I like to think about when someone has endometriosis and a lot of pain with eating is less what to eliminate. Even if you just only eliminate those four things ever, that might be enough. Assuming that we focus on what to add. So you said, like, how do we control inflammation? Because there's a lot of fear around eating, a lot of digestive issues, a lot of worry about if what I eat is going to make this work. We actually have to start thinking about food as a tool for healing rather than something to restrict really important because otherwise you start down in uh, eating disorder rabbit hole. So focus on adding lots of vegetables, maybe need to be cooked for a while. Nightshades is a conversation we could have later, but that's the only thing that's a maybe. But there's so many beneficial anti-inflammatory herbs and spices. So learning how to cook is really important. Cooking with oregano, rosemary, thyme, Uh, coconut oil, you know, olive oil, fish, eating certain kinds of fish, um, you know, berries, things that have healing properties. We want to be just as focused on adding those foods as taking away other foods. Turmeric and curcumin is a really good one. So some of these things are very directly helpful for pelvic and period pain in the literature like curcumin or turmeric 
uh, fish oil. But the way I like to think about it is a gentle kind of layered approach where we use culinary herbs and spices, not always just huge therapeutic doses of supplements, because we also have to keep the nervous system relaxed. And sometimes when your digestive system is irritated, just adding lots and lots of therapeutic doses of supplements irritates the enteric nervous system, makes it hard to kind of rest and digest. So that calming, calm inputs to the nervous system is probably just as important as specifically what we're eating. Oh, I love this message and it's so important. I mean, for, for someone like myself who's dealt with SIBO and tons of GI issues in my, pretty much my entire life that then compounded into, um, into hormonal issues, I think there was so much emphasis on like the elimination diet and all these things. And you do, even if you have kind of a good baseline when you're getting started with this stuff, it can be very mentally toxic to think that way for such a long time. And you have a lot of things to undo. So I love this approach of kind of adding in really healthy foods um, and, and looking at it from that perspective. And it's an interesting also um, additive about the supplements. Thank you for kind of listing the things that are shown in the literature to help, but also showing that we can't get those things from food. And that can be just as beneficial because our mindset and eating in a restful uh, place, that parasympathetic nervous system is so crucially important. So it sounds like stress management is probably also on your holistic plan. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I think we've covered about everything we can in this first uh, session. Maybe we'll have you back for another one. Is there anything you want to leave the women listening with and and please let them know how they can get in touch with you? I know outsmartendo.com and there's probably a couple other websites that people can find you on. Yeah, we also, so the main website is integrativewomenshealthinstitute.com and we do a lot of professional training Um, And obviously, we also have a program to help women with endometriosis or other complex pelvic pain. And uh, probably the easiest way to just find me is at Integrative Women's Health on Instagram. Thank you so much for sharing all this invaluable knowledge, Dr. Jessica Drummond. It's been a pleasure to interview you today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. And thanks, ladies, for listening. We always appreciate your time. This is Sophie Shepard, founder of the She Talks Health podcast. You can find me on Instagram at She Talks Health, and I look forward to serving you there. Thank you for joining us this week for She Talks Health. Please join Sophie Shepard again next week for another episode of our show on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a great week. Sophie Shepard is a functional nutrition practitioner and founder of SHE. Sophie helps busy women all over the world go from menstrual cycle chaos to optimal hormonal alignment so they can live their lives fully without being held back by their bodies. Using the power of functional lab testing combined with life-changing mindset shifts and integrating the entire body's system. If the only thing holding you back is your health, it's time to stop letting hormonal chaos run your world. 
Book your health discovery call today by going to SheTalksHealth.com. Are you done medicating and guessing your way through the exhaustion, pain, and irritability caused by menstrual cycle and digestive health issues? Sophie Shepard, founder of She, will help you go from symptom-ridden and confused to finally having clarity about how your menstrual cycle works and confidence in your health strategy in just 10 days. If you are ready to stop living with painful, heavy, irregular, or non-existent periods, no energy, brain fog, anxiety, and digestive issues, then check out the 10-Day Digestive and Hormone Reboot at SheTalksHealth.com.